Well, friends, I'd like to invite you to go ahead and turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 4. I love the fact that we're just going verse by verse right through Exodus. Um, I know in many ways it can seem a little long. You know, how long might we be in Exodus, right? But the beauty of going through it verse by verse is that we actually see God's providence in how he gives us the exact word that we need as we go right through it. And it's no irony to me, it's not lost on me that right now, as we look at this passage, we're about to see the theme that speaks to us specifically in the situation that we as a church plant find ourselves in. Call it providence, but it is exactly where we are at right now as a church. And so friends, Exodus 4, as a brief precursor to this passage, to our sermon even, is all about the oh-so-fun theme of doubt. A theme that none of us really like to talk about, right? (laughs) Doubt. What happens when we don't believe God, when we're faced with doubts? Well, God answers us. And this is especially a fitting theme for us as a young, bustling church plant. Because there are, I'm sure, no doubt, doubts here in our own midst. For instance, we might ask these questions often, and I hear it myself in my own heart and in conversations. How could God ever use us here in downtown Lynchburg for his glory to reach the lost for Christ? How will God provide for our church as we move forward in faith? And why would he even want to use us given our own feelings of inadequacy and inability in the day by day. These are doubts that I wrestle with, and I'm sure doubts that you wrestle with as well, especially as we come together as God's people every Sunday. But the message of Exodus 4, 1 through 9, directly addresses these doubts and so many more with God's assurance. See, it tells us of his plan of deliverance from the evil devices of sinful men and the freedom into which he is bringing us as a collective people, as this church plant here in downtown Lynchburg. It tells us this central theme, the the big idea, if you will, for this morning, that we are to trust in God despite the odds. Again, we are to trust in God despite the odds. So let's go ahead and read now from God's holy word in Exodus 4, verses 1 through 9. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff? And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. 
If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, timeless, unchanging, faithful, true. Let's come before our God in prayer again. Father, as we now approach the preaching of your word, we ask, O Lord, for your spirit to be at work in our hearts. We thank you, O Lord, that the preaching of your word is truly your word ministering to us. And so, Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit himself would be flooding our hearts by your grace with the very message that you would have for us this morning. I ask, O God, as your messenger, that I myself would get out of the way, that that you, O Lord, would speak to us, that you would minister to our souls exactly where each one of us needs it this morning. Encourage us, O Lord, build up our faith, bind us up in the body of Christ, and let us hear now your word given, O Lord, to us. We pray this all in Christ's holy name, and for his name's sake, amen. Well, friends, this morning I want to frame our approach to this passage with three key points. First, Moses' doubt that we see immediately right there in verse 1. Second, God's answer to Moses' doubt, which we see, of course, in the remainder of the verses, verses 2 through 9. And finally, implicit to our text, our assurance as Christians as we learn from this text and apply it to our lives. And so again, Moses' doubt... God's answer, and finally, our assurance. Let's go ahead and begin by taking a look back at the greater context of our passage. Uh, We know, as Pastor Clay has been preaching through chapter 3 for us the last few weeks, that Moses had come across by this point nothing less and no one less than the angel of the Lord Christ Jesus himself right there in the burning bush. See, the Lord God himself appeared to him, as we know, in a flame of fire with his presence cloaking and saturating and all but consuming that living bush right before Moses' fearful eyes. (laughs) And so right here we see the creative power of God, the sustaining providence of God, and the incarnational majesty of our God on full display already for us in Exodus 3. And so calling out to Moses, the Lord we know drew him in, allowing his barren feet to traverse upon this holy ground. Though fearful, Moses answered in our text, here I am. But immediately, immediately upon learning that it was God who called out to him, Moses hid his face in shame from before God's holiness. But he also cowered in fear at the commission he was about to receive, the call to action that God would give him. See, we know this, that God would soon command him to go back to the people of Israel to do what? To bring about their deliverance. For God had surely seen the affliction of his people. And so he gave Moses this twofold promise of deliverance. First, to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, but second, to bring them up out of that land for what purpose? To bring them to a land that was a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. 
And as an assurance of this, God told Moses that he would make ends meet for them. He would provide for them, even financially speaking, right there in the text. He essentially said that he would show the Israelites favor. How? On the part of the Egyptians. This was in our text last week. See, by God's own hand, God would essentially hand deliver to the Israelite women specifically silver, gold jewelry, and clothing, again, directly into their hands from their former taskmasters. Effectively, God would turn their former taskmasters into maternal figures. No joke. Like a mother giving of her own self for the ongoing good and well-being of her child, God would turn these slave masters into motherly-like figures, blessing the people of Israel in direct fulfillment of Genesis 12 and 15 and other passages. Such unbelievable favor could only be from God's clever handiwork. See, for 400 years prior, the people of Israel had become a crying people, but also an oppressed people, as the Bible tells us. They were filled with doubt. But even in the midst of their doubt, they were nevertheless God's people. And so Moses was fully aware of the extreme, abusive hostility that had left Israel now wounded and reeling in utter pain. I'm sure he knew the reports over the last 40 years that had come to him. And so there seemed to be no way out for this people of Israel, Moses' people. But God insisted to Moses that he would use his own outstretched hand to deliver his people from slavery into safety. And from God-less dominance to God-led dominion. He even gave Moses his own most holy name as a pledge and an assurity, his sacred name, I am who I am. But even though Moses, at this point in our passage of Exodus 4, may have trusted God himself at this point in our reading, he most certainly doubted the hearts of the people. Exodus 4 verse 1 again tells us this, Then Moses answered, and this is our key phrase, But they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. In other words, he was saying, God, I know these people. I grew up with many of them. They have been through so much hurt and pain. Decades, centuries even before us have come and gone. And there has been no deliverance from this cruel oppression. Surely they will not believe me. Do you hear the doubt in his voice? Friends, hierarchy is at the very core of all doubt. See, Moses knew that God could certainly do the impossible. He feared God in that way. After all, as he was still speaking with God, the Lord was yet still consuming the bush right in front of him that whole time without letting that same bush be consumed itself. And so Moses wasn't even necessarily afraid, from what we know of in our text, of what Pharaoh might do to him. He wasn't even necessarily afraid of the going, the actual commission itself. He didn't fear the likely sentence of death for defying Pharaoh, but he did fear something greater on that totem pole, so to speak. He feared the people. And more specifically, he feared their judgment of him. 
I'm sure that most of us have heard before that the greatest fear that almost all of us as humans have in this life is the fear of death and dying. Some people might say taxes as well might be included in that. (laughs) But this is simply not the case. It's not the ultimate fear that we have. It's not death. See, what we fear at the very core of our being is judgment. Judgment that is personally directed at us. And therefore, every other fear is rooted in that kind of fear of judgment. This is why so many of us fear public speaking, or we fear confrontation behind closed doors, or we even fear being alone with our own self-judgmental thoughts. We fear being scrutinized. We fear being watched. We fear being judged without any form of resolve on the shoreline by the shifting opinions of others and what they might say or do to us. Our culture refers to this phenomenon nowadays as social anxiety. But I believe it is precisely what Moses was fearing when he expressed before God those words. They will not believe me. Friends, if I'm being completely honest and transparent with you, I have these same doubts in my own heart on a near daily basis. See, I often feel the same expression of doubt within my soul, they will not believe me. How about you? Who are the they in your life? The they in your life that are essentially dominating your thoughts and governing your actions in the day to day to day. Well, the scriptures tell us that the Lord answers these things by assuring us that we are to simply trust him and obey him. And in Micah 6, 8, he very gently, like a father to a child, directs us. He says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. He's given us a very simple path forward in the midst of these things, but again, our doubts seem to conquer our minds. See, doubt is a vicious taskmaster, just like those Egyptian slave masters of old. Doubt drives each one of us. It drives us away from both a childlike reverence toward God and even a long lifestyle of time-tested obedience before God. It affects both the simple and the mature in the faith. It causes us to make awful decisions, destructive decisions. Doubt makes us choose the path of least resistance rather than resting upon our Redeemer. But doubt doesn't stop there. See, doubt destroys good company. It destroys honest Christian fellowship. And it destroys our acts of charity and mercy and justice. But at its core, doubt replaces the very seat of God in our own hearts and a rational, reasonable faith in him. And you know how it does this? It puts forward this providence-defying delusion in our minds. They will not believe me. Christian, who then is the they in your life right now? Who is it that you in this moment are fearing more than God himself? And will you choose to hand that specific fear of judgment from the they over to God this morning? Well, this leads us to our second point. God's answer in verses 2 through 9. 
His answer to our doubt, just like Moses. And I love how at the very height of Moses' own fear and doubt, God answered him. He answered him. See, he didn't say, well, to heck with you, I'll choose someone else. He didn't give up on him or quit on Moses. No, as Moses began to honestly express his own doubt, they will not believe me. God knew that Moses was just simply expressing his humanity, his limitedness, his finiteness. He heard Moses essentially saying, God, I am lacking. I am lacking control. I lack authority. I lack favor. I lack foreknowledge. And so just as God had appeared to him incarnationally in the burning bush, stooping down to his level, God essentially, as we see in the text, actually respected Moses' own humanity and his open, honest confession And he chose to perfectly address him in the midst of his doubt. But how did God address him? Well, verse 2 tells us this. The Lord said to him, I love this. What what is that in your hand? What is that in your hand? At this point, I can't help but think of the old show Looney Tunes, which I definitely grew up on almost every day. Because Moses' reaction is so comedic from this point forward. See, dumbfounded, when God asked him, what is that in your hand? All Moses could get out was essentially, as we see in our ESV, a a staff, right? Or maybe in the message version, it might say, "Uh, the the shepherd's stick. Like, I got this, you know, nothing else. Just a shepherd's stick here. You know what happened next? The Lord said to him, again, something that will blow your mind, uh, throw it on the ground. Like, what? Where did this come from? (laughs) Throw it on the ground. And so Moses took it and he threw it on the ground because, you know, he won't be part of the system, man. And for all two of you who got that, I, I appreciate you. <laughs> the others, I'll fill you in a little later <laughs> after this service. But jokes aside, the text does indeed say when Moses took it and threw it on the ground, it became a serpent. And he ran from it. He ran from it. God then told Moses to catch that serpent by the tail. And as he did, It did what? It turned back into a staff. Again, God gave him another sign to put his hand inside his cloak, at which point it would turn leprous until he did so again. And a third sign, when he would return to Egypt down the road, he was to take some of the water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and then it would become as thick, like thick red blood right there before their eyes. Now, of course, these three signs were not mere magic tricks or amusements. As if Moses was to go back to the Israelites and say, Hey guys, check out this new magic trick that I learned way out in the desert. It only took me 40 years to learn these things. Come check it out, you know? No, God gave the reason in verse 5 of our text. What was the reason God gave him? By answering Moses' doubt, God used his own language. He said that who? They. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. The same they that would surely cast judgment as Moses was fearful of. The same they that Moses feared more than the king over all of Israel, uh, Egypt, rather, Pharaoh himself. These same they would end up believing that the God who covenanted with their forefathers, promising them grace and life and eternal blessing before all the peoples of the earth, way back in Genesis, 
was about to now fulfill his promise yet once more in the single greatest act of redemption on that side of the cross. And to prove this to the Israelites, that God would indeed deliver his people. God would work belief, belief into their hearts as they saw these three miraculous signs that were all purposed to draw their minds back to the God of creation, providence, and especially salvation. But how do we know this? How do we know that this was the purpose? Well, the answer is found back in Genesis chapter 3 for us. See, way back in the Garden of Eden, we know the story. Think back with me, though, to the fall of man specifically in the Garden. We know that Satan came in the form of what? A serpent. Craftily leading our first parents to doubt God and act upon their doubt in sinful rebellion against him. How? By directly breaking the covenant of life. Or as we often say in our Reformed circles, the covenant of works, right? Same thing. Based upon their obedience that God had made with them in Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The serpent caused them to doubt and then act upon their doubt. But what do we know of God's response to Adam and Eve in the garden? He pursued them. Yes, he chastised them along with the serpent, but he gave to our first father and mother the promise, a new promise even, the promise of grace. Grace afforded to them not as a result of their obedience, but only as an act of sheer sovereign mercy upon their lives through the coming Redeemer. He promised, in fact, a redeemer, a deliverer to come who would, as we know, crush the head of the serpent. And as a sign of this coming deliverance from evil, God put a cloak of animal skins over their nakedness, signifying his atoning righteousness yet to come through the means of blood. Friends, what were the three signs that we saw in our passage of Exodus 4 that God gave to Moses? A staff turned into a serpent, <clears throat> a serpent that could actually be dominated, a cloak that produced defilement and uncleanness for but a moment, but then purity and cleanness once more, and water scooped up from the Nile that when poured out would turn into thick red blood. A serpent, a cloak, and blood. Again, a serpent, a cloak, and blood. Do you see what's going on? See, God was communicating to Moses along with the rest of his own people that not only was he the same God who created all things at the beginning and by his own hand upholds all things by the word of his power, he is the living, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of all salvation. The same God who promised salvation way back in the garden, who would once again display signs of his coming salvation through the signs of a serpent, a cloak, and blood. This brings us to our third and final point this morning. See, this divine answer leaves us with a now resplendent view of God's greater redemption through Christ, doesn't it? See, even in the midst of our doubts, God answers and he declares to us the assurance of our salvation as afforded to us in the gospel of grace. Hear this gospel preached over you from Galatians 4. Galatians 4 tells us, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son to our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Think again of the signs that God gave Moses and the people. A serpent, a cloak, and blood. These same signs rightfully draw our mind's eye now to nothing short of the cross of Christ. See, upon the cross, Christ waged all-out war against Satan, sin, and death and dealt the final death blow to our great enemy, crushing the head of the serpent right there upon the cross. In his atoning death, Jesus covered and paid for our sins and clothes us now with the purest of all cloaks, his perfect righteousness attributed to all of us who confess our sins and call upon him for salvation. And the blood that once poured forth from Christ's own head, his hands, and his side still speak to us who believe the powerful word of forgiveness in his name alone. Surely, friends, this causes our hearts to sing, does it not? In the words of the hymn writer, William Reese, love these words, he said this, Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood, who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise. He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the Mount of Crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed our guilty world in love. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in view of God's sheer mercy and his answer to our own doubts, what room is then left for these doubts? What room is left for any judgment against God's elect? What room is there for condemnation and fear in our own lives as we go forward? Our God has conquered each one of them through the same angel of the Lord who appeared before Moses 3,500 years ago. That's the final point of application then. Again, what then are the doubts that we are harboring, not just in our own individual souls, but in our life here as the body of Christ, as a young church plant? What are these fears? Who or what are we fearing in this season? Do we fear this season of support raising? Do we fear what other churches in our pasts may think of us as we grow and flourish and blossom? Do we fear that God will not provide for our every single need along the way? Do we fear that no one new may come and actually join themselves to our young church? Do we fear our own inadequacies in serving this downtown community when all we have, like Moses, is a mere staff in our hands. Well, I know the list goes on and on, but how does God answer each one of these doubts? What assurances does his timeless, unchanging, authoritative word speak over us even now? Let me give you a few examples. Psalm 91. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. 
Psalm 138, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against my, the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand upholds me. Matthew 10, the laborer deserves his food. Psalm 44, you are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through you and your name we tread down those who rise up against us. And finally, Psalm 90, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So church, this is our loving God in whom we trust. And so friends, trust in God, despite the odds. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that you indeed again are the author and perfecter of our faith. We thank you, O Lord, that you invite us to come before you like children. For Lord, you indeed love us. You will clothe us. You will feed us. You will nurture us. You will care for us. Lord, the list goes on and on. Who are we to doubt? Who are we, O Lord, to say no to you? Lord, we thank you, though, that you have given us protection safe refuge from the storm, a mighty fortress into which the righteous man can run into and be safe. So Lord, we thank you. We praise you. In Christ's holy name. Amen.